Can you express simply what that conflict is for you? We have two goals. One, the short term, which is the establishing and maintaining and improving of wages and conditions, or whatever they may be, day by day, week by week, year by year. And the long term political struggle, which means the ending of the present system of society and uh, the replacing of that society by a socialist system of society. That, of course, is written into our rules and constitution, and therefore I'm duty-bound to carry it through. Hello and welcome back again to Red Star Radio, another week of diving into the ever-increasing swirling vortex of bourgeois politics and trying to apply the lens of Marxism to see more clearly. And joining me again this week is my co-host, Layla. Hello, over to you in Canada. Hi, Alex. And this week, we've got a couple of things for you on the cards. First, we're going to be looking at giving you a COVID update, as we are now the world's number one COVID podcast. That's the title that I've decided to award myself in an act of self-identification. So well done, us. And then we're going to be looking at um, trade unions uh, under capitalism today and discussing some of the major issues around that, uh, taking in some historical perspectives as well. But first of all, historic news. Um, King Boris, the first or maybe the last, I'm not sure, um, has emerged from whatever hole he hides in five days out of the, of the seven to make an announcement at the mother of all parliaments, uh, the the eye of the, the, the lair of the white worm, um, to tell us all that he is freeing the captive nation from its bonds imposed by the shackles of COVID and that the... The kids will be back at school from March, that you can get a haircut again from April, and that you can also get a haircut whilst going to the gym and wearing a mask. Uh, and that by June, you'll be able to go on holiday again, providing it's only to Britain, provided you can actually afford it, provided you've not lost your job, provided you're not in a five-mask zone, a ten-mask zone, or provided that... Uh, Dr. Fauci hasn't declared that looking at somebody else in a suggestive fashion could give you either COVID or AIDS, one of the two. Um, Weirdly enough, I'm only slightly exaggerating in that. But bottom line is that there is now, the government has adopted a plan out of the, well, the things that are called lockdowns, but are, as we've argued previously on the podcast, in actuality, curfews for most people. Um, schools have already gone back in Wales um, in, the regional government in Scotland is embroiled in a, another political crisis altogether which it would take me an hour to talk about so I won't but looks like that they will try and manipulate the reopening to suit the agenda of the ruling Scottish National Party but that's nothing new so it looks like there'll be some kind of to want of a better term normality restored by the beginning of June I suspect that they will stick to this reopening plan because um, if you've been paying attention to the financial press, Wall Street has come out and says that they expect things to be pretty much over by April. And as soon as the market issues its instructions, um, obedient servants such as Boris Johnson and Kamala Harris will jump to it. Joe Biden will accidentally say the N-word and fall asleep in a press conference, but he's not really a factor anymore. So, uh, did you want to jump in on any of the reopening plans? Well, I just want to say I'm really happy for you guys, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we are in Ontario. Um, we've started loosening things up. Like some regions are 
uh, opening up, but the main population centers centers are still under harsh lockdowns. So I think for me, uh, when I looked into England's um, lockdown rules plan, it was a little bit less ambitious than I thought they would go. I thought they would just, they will really quickly because JP Morgan has, of course, declared that the pandemic is ending by April. Thank you very much. They've had enough. Thanks for the show. Yeah, if, if only they'd worked this out earlier. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, guys. We're ready to move on. Um, but I mean, I think overall the tendency is towards reopening, as we stated. Um, there was a lot of anxiety at various points during this pandemic that the lockdowns would never end or that we would never go back to normal. Um, But, you know, as you and I showed, like, um, yeah, like this, like the only reason that they were in place, like was for political purposes, which have now been um, have now been exhausted. Um, So without that in place, I think that the political harms of keeping the lockdowns going outweigh the political gains. Another important element, of course, is that, uh, as we've argued, these lockdowns are just in place to put on a show for finance capital as it lurches its way through the ongoing structural recession. Um, And so I think as that is like it seems like from the unemployment numbers, it seems like things are slowly getting better. Um, You know, the rate of exploitation is increasing. Um, and I'm sure that Joe Biden's stimulus will have plenty of support for businesses to create precarious and more high work intensity jobs. Um, so they can kind of they're they're going to kind of uh, embed that process within a vaccination pandemic is getting better storyline. And so they actually need that storyline to start wrapping up at this point. Yeah. And uh, the as you pointed out to me earlier this week, they are already floating the narrative of herd immunity through the capitalist press. Like there's been a New York Times story on how the United States is going to be having increasing herd immunity to it. They're also allowing through stories from like India and Nepal where herd immunity got reached in the uh, late summer, early autumn period. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think that um, I've said this a bunch of times on Twitter, but and, you know, perhaps you agree, like, I don't think that the vaccination effort will be completed um, according to its original goals. So in the United States, for instance, they wanted to get, I think, 60 percent of the population vaccinated in Canada. They were aiming to have vaccines available for, you know, everyone who wanted it by like July. I don't know if that will actually that those um, those timelines will be reached um, because um, capitalist states don't have any actual material pressure to make it happen. Uh, the vaccines will not affect the ability to do to conduct production because the disease is not harmful to working aged people. So there's no actual pressure for them to figure it out, to get their shit together um, and like, you know, create a plan that could actually function. So I think that like, yeah, like some percentage of the populations in the United States, U.S. and U.K. especially, which actually has been doing pretty well, vaccinations um, will be completed. But I don't think it's going to ever be the amount that they originally said we need for herd immunity. So I think that's why they're pushing through this, these storylines about how like, oh, actually, you know, a lot of people have already been infected. So they're going to do this thing where they're going to say, well, you know, the uh, gained immunity from infections because everyone didn't follow the rules, they're going to say, plus the, you know, 30% of people we vaccinated equals herd immunity, pandemic over, congratulations, go back to work. So I think that's how it's going to go. Yeah, I agree. And the 
the stories are being floated for to give it that foundation uh, to make it to to make the idea accepted in the in the public mind before they come out and announce it because they need to be able to actually make these statements without people saying hang on a minute you told us that that was a really bad idea like eight months ago so they're trying they're trying to make that recede back into the back into the public's um, memory hole basically Alex and I are old enough to remember when saying the words herd immunity was akin to calling for genocide <laughs> I, I'm old enough to remember when. Merely saying herd immunity would get you kicked out of the left, so you best say it immediately. <laughs> yeah, we we remember. We won't forget, but I think a lot of a <laughs> lot of people will <laughs> They'll suddenly yeah, forget. Exactly. Well, um, in on a side note, the British left's uh, zero COVID campaign um, uh, lasted about three weeks. And then they seem to drop it. Then they picked it up again. And then they dropped it again. Uh, there's nothing like um, a really consistent strategy and a really consistent slogan uh, to make sure that you're raring success and that everybody takes you seriously. Um, I, d- I do keep asking this sort of ham-faced buffoon called Richard Burgeon, who's like the, the leader of the Labour left on Twitter. It's like, Richard, what happened to your zero COVID campaign? So far, he hasn't responded. I will keep asking at least three times a day until he blocks me, like John McDonnell did. Um, I am so but- shocked that the left um, came out with a slogan that completely fell flat with everyone except for their small crew of people. That's so surprising. Wow. It's... <laughs> Life, Layla, is full of surprises. And you know what? Life comes at you fast. Do you mean the proletariat isn't interested in going into indefinite lockdown in order to get this virus to zero cases? Is that what you're saying? Strangely enough. Strangely enough, no. Um, It seems to have been about as popular as um, eating a poison ivy ice cream. But what about the teachers? What about the vanguard? They're ready to strike until it's zero. Uh, Uh... I, I hear there were there were there were um, uh, air rifles being seen taken into the National Education Union headquarters. Uh, maybe they were delivered from um, delivered from Germany. Uh, maybe there's going to be a teachers' uprising in like Warwickshire or something. Or maybe the government will give the union just enough of a fig leaf to capitulate. Well, I'm I'm putting my money on uh, the leader of the teachers' revolution being brought to England on a sealed train from Germany <laughs> or Switzerland. <laughs> They're making their, uh, so we're getting into March now, their March theses um, yeah. and yeah. leading the yeah. worldwide revolution from Manchester. But it can only be done from home. It can only be done from home and you can never, uh, you can only have Zoom meetings. And whenever you see people in person, it has to be with a mask and standing six feet apart. So yes. it's gonna be it's gonna be a revolution like none other, but just because yeah, it's exactly. different doesn't mean it's not valid. Yeah, you, you cannot deny the potential lived experience. Cannot it, that's not okay. So, so good luck, <laughs> teachers. I'm it's not okay. I'm looking forward just to like our the, lockdown revolution happening. Exactly. Put your mask on. Put your goggles on. Put your hazmat suit on. Sit at home and put on a Billy Bragg CD. <laughs> That's going to be it. Um, but just to round up on the COVID thing, um, one thing I did want to mention was just that um, the utility of the Marxist method that we've that we've both found to be um, incredibly illuminating in looking at this 
Now, for me personally, um, when I started to actually look at like why a lot of this was not making any sense, um, the thing that you start to look at is not only obviously there are some people making gigantic profits out of um, the current the wave of um, COVID crises, but also like you look at like where what's happening with the productive workers whose labours um, the capitalist class profits from most of all and when you see that those people have not stopped working all the way through this or there was only a very very brief pause then you see clearly that this is not something that is a fundamental threat because for a brief period early on some of the capitalists thought that it might be a fundamental threat to the most productive layers of the workforce as soon as they found out it wasn't we were descended into the never-ending um, hall of smoke and mirrors uh, because if capital can still generate profit via you know, the employment of productive workers and their exploitation, then there's not a crisis for capitalism. Now, it's not as such. And if the working age population isn't that badly affected by it, if at all affected by it, then you have to ask, well, then you have to explore why we are in this um, smoke and mirrors operation. And that's how how it enabled how looking at this through a mark and using the Marxist method enabled me to at least start asking the questions that led to me doing a video on it, us working together on it. But did you want to say a bit about how the Marxist method helps to understand the current situation? Once again, the immortal science of materialist dialect dialectics has um, enabled us to see the truth behind. Uh, the superstructure. Um, so, I mean, there is a, a crisis going on, like we are in a recession. Um, but I think that what Marxism allows us to see is the actual source of this recession, which is just the structural contradictions of capital. This recession was going to come whether or not the pandemic had arrived. Um, we believe that it was just by sheer coincidence that COVID-19 uh, arrived on the scene at the same time as uh, the recession was about to to happen. Um, so I think, um, I, I think it's really confusing to me why, um, we're seeing communists and Marxists get confused by this because capitalism is never going to stop its own ability to do production, no matter how much individual capitalists thought that was necessary. Um, capital as a whole isn't able to do that on its own because that would mean the ending of capitalism, like and capitalism isn't going to end itself. The only way that this disease would have affected production is if it was actually as bad as people thought it was and resulted in the die-off of a huge portion of the working class, working-aged people. And that's not what it did. It didn't affect them any more than the baseline, um, which is, you know, I, it, which is basically it wasn't any worse than the regular flu. Sorry. And um, they've been going to work, most of them, most working class people, by and large, have been going to work in person ever since the start of the pandemic. So once you realize that um, COVID-19 isn't the big bad pandemic that is affecting production that capitalists thought it was, then you can start to build out a proletarian perspective, which is based on objective reality, which... The bourgeoisie has a very tenuous link to at this point, um, but luckily uh, we can hold on to it a, a little better. <laughs> it's worth just emphasizing just how much the 
capitalist class and their political representatives managed to consistently uh, what we how we would term it psyop themselves now because the when you have a system that as we've covered before is not only there is a is there a fundamental irrationality in the foundations of capitalism but it's been getting worse as the system becomes more financialized more based on debt and fictitious capital the system has been getting more fragile and not only that the um the political structures are getting more rotten so you end up with like complete idiots running everything and not only that the, not only are the frontline politicians idiots, which maybe people do expect, but the so-called experts, the scientists, you know, the people like Fauci who are held up as like the hero of liberalism, you realize that, oh yeah, this guy's just a career climber and actually always says the same things, whether it's, an out, it's the AIDS virus or COVID, it's the same advice, <laughs> you know? And that the the idea that the he guys like him keep popping up every time there's a crisis just tells you that the the this isn't to anything to do with real science as we covered on our bad bourgeois science episode. This is everything to do with just the system in a death spiral, basically. Exactly, and um, I think the big mistake a lot of um, Marxists that we know and we follow, like so, for instance, Michael Roberts. Like much respect to him, he's done a lot of good work, but. He's wrong, and it's because he's not questioning science um, and understanding that scientists are not like neutral practitioners of a mode of analysis. Like they are bourgeois, they are part of the political system, and the statements they make are not scientific. Like they are political statements, and so we can only understand them through a class lens, and because of that, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have gotten it wrong, believing that they. They believe like they they're wrong because they have they base their whole thing on two incorrect premises, which is number one that this virus um, is the reason why we're in a recession. There's no evidence of that for reasons that we've written about and spoken about. And number two that scientists can writ large be trusted and their word can be taken as mostly true. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that, um, I think if you assume most scientists are just full of shit, like, I think you're probably going to get right more than wrong. There's a bit of truth there sometimes, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I spoke to a ton of scientists and doctors when I was, um, in person, like, or, you know, in person on the phone, whatever, um, when I was investigating this and a lot of them are actually not very smart. Like they don't use any deductive reasoning. They never question the premises on which they base their arguments on. And like they will actually ignore uh, evidence if it contradicts the ideological positions that they need to take as part of uh, the, the petty bourgeoisie, right? So they're not like, I think that capitalism, absence class pressure from class struggle um, cannot produce good science and it cannot produce good scientists. Um, the scientists that are formed come generally from the petty bourgeoisie, which is a class that produces a ton of people who are weak, who lack conviction, who lack courage. And you need those attributes to be a good scientist. Like it's not easy to adopt the null hypothesis, especially in times of crisis and say, listen, like there's just no good evidence for this. Like we need to adopt the null hypothesis. It's not easy to do that. It's much easier to jump on like the panic ship and, you know, recommend these uh, these uh, policies that kind of seem like they might work because for you know various illogical reasons right um so yeah like i don't I, I don't think that i think that's where a lot of the marxists went wrong here like uh, on those two points 
Yeah, yeah. And the the inability to actually question science as a construction and as a product of capitalist society and therefore defined by the same class divisions that the rest of capitalist society is defined by. So the the idea that there is this field of knowledge which is not subject to class power is one that has fundamentally in my view destroyed any remaining credibility of a lot of Marxist organizations in the fact that they uh, were saying rightly for years that uh, class is the defining uh, metric to actually understand society except for this science over here which is completely immune to it and therefore we should just take everything it says at face value that's a ridiculous position because the point and then when you, yeah sorry go ahead and then when you dig into it you see that there's half a dozen a dozen maybe more dissenting opinions even within bourgeois science itself yeah and you don't i mean if people were actually doing marxism properly there would yes that that is something you need to do at some point. But the problem is that a lot of these Marxists don't start with a view of production. They don't start from the view of the working class, which is ironic because Marxism is the only mode of analysis that does so, right? Um, but if you were to realize, like if you were to look at the production data and you were to, you know, look at um, the way in which work has been conducted since the start, you'll find that, yeah, like most working people have been at work and they've not been dying or they've not been hospitalized in amounts which would stop that process from happening. Okay, what does that mean, right? So they don't, but they don't do that. Like I think obviously a lot, I mean, a lot of these Marxists are not working class themselves. Like, okay, like that's a given, but um, they don't have any interaction with working people and, but they don't use the, they don't use dialectical materialism properly. Like, um, I don't know. I, I don't like they just don't. I don't know why no one tries to view things from the perspective of the working class, like which is what a proletarian kind of theoretician should be doing. Well, if you know the answers to that, then please send us a postcard. Um, but I think it's what you said. It's the it's the fact that um, official Marxism, the officially recognized Marxist, the academic Marxist, it's all a very middle class ghetto. Yeah. And it's a self-reinforcing circle where even when they do talk about class, it's in a highly abstract fashion. It's divorced from the actually existing class struggle, as things stand, um, which is a great segue into trade unionism if we want to go there now. Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay. Unions. So... As Pete Seeger once said, the union forever defending our rights, down with the black leg, all workers unite. That song, made famous by Pete Seeger, has been banned by the Equality and Human Rights Commission for the words black legs could be racist, but also for denying the lived experience of scabs and capitalists. Um, so that, that song is now banned. Uh, I'm joking, of course. But then again, every joke we make comes true in two weeks now, so I fully expect... Uh, Michael Gove or some other clown to go on the TV and basically say the following songs uh, are banned for denying the lived experience of the wealthy. But the main focus of this week's episode we wanted to do was a look at the trade union movement focusing on uh, the British, Canadian, to a certain extent the US examples, in what's now the fifth decade of the what can what is popularly described as the neoliberal period even with all the changes that have taken place over the last 10 years and 
where are we in terms of trade unions, but also not only like the current diagnosis, but like what are like the strengths and weaknesses of unions? The answer might just surprise you. Um, what is the the limits of trade unionism? What it, what is its actual role in capitalist society? But the place for us to start is a just an overview of the uh, the state of play in our respective countries, so Britain and Canada. But did you, Layla, did you want to say anything about the subject in general before we start? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's an interesting subject. Like, I think unions, um, they've always had this kind of contradictory position in some ways, but I think especially now that we're at a state of really low-class struggle, I think a lot of people, communist and Marxist, have been questioning their utility and questioning their role within, um, their value within a proletarian struggle. And I think also, like, with unions, they've gone into such a marginalized position that it's, it, yeah, it's getting to a point where one has like it's it's raising a lot of questions like what's going on here exactly right so yeah so i think like uh this we're, we're gonna try to look at things from different perspectives like look like you know kind of look at the look at it from like the leftist perspective like the liberal left who think that the unions are the panacea for working people and the way in which they're going to get all their gains there's also maybe a left communist perspective which is like unions are just part of the bourgeoisie and just uh, you know an appendage of the state and we're going to try to apply the marxist lens to it and try to come to a, a more dialectical uh answer so let's begin shall i begin by just giving a quick overview of how things are in britain today okay um to give some idea of scale the union movement in 1979 at the the beginning of the Thatcher period, though it must be emphasized that the the counter-revolution against the working class had been going on really since the mid-1960s under both conservative and labor governments here. But the high point of trade unionism was reached in 1979 when you had 13.5 million mem uh, members or individual members of trade unions in Britain. Now, to give some indication of scale, uh, the population of Britain then was around about seven or eight million lower than it is now. So you had um, a huge amount of the workforce covered by individual membership of trade unions, but also covered, even if they weren't in unions themselves, covered by much wider collective bargaining arrangements by industry and by employer. So that's the, it was a huge movement back in the, uh, the the late 1970s, numerically a very large movement. It was a movement with very strong militant traditions, and those militant traditions were underpinned by the, what I'm going to drop in some Gramsci now, what he once defined as the organic intellectuals of the working class, which is the, the working class militant, the working class um, leader who organizes in their factory or community the members of that particular um, section of the working class to um, become politically aware to actually learn the basics of class struggle and to learn how to actually conduct class struggle in the workplace there used to be a whole layer of those individual workers who composed that layer of uh, militant shop floor trade union leaders and that was one of the key bases upon which 
British working class strength was built up to the middle middle 1980s and that was one of the key things that the both the Thatcher then major then Blair governments really wanted to eliminate which is the um, the working class militant the shop steward as they used to be called uh, the people who would organize from the uh, ranks of the the workplace and the union upwards so a lot of the struggle against trade unions committed occur to by the bourgeoisie in Britain from the uh, middle 60s onwards was it was of course motivated by the fact that the uh, the rate of profit was declining as you can see through the returns on capital invested in Britain from the middle 60s onwards it starts to decline and that's of course where you get the pressure on trade unions to make more concessions from the ruling class but also then an escalating drive to just flat out de-industrialize the country destroy whole areas of industry destroy a lot of fixed capital and reduce of course wages down to the lowest possible level now that struggle initially took them 20 years before they broke irrevocably the most militant section of the working class in the miners unions and then after that they were able to actually go full bore with deindustrialization that never really stopped and so we come to today when the number of unions the number of union members is exactly half of what it was back in 1979 so from or 1979-1980 so in 41 years 42 years we've gone from 13 and a half million people being in trade unions in Britain and that's again with a significantly smaller population to so only around six and a half million being members of unions now and from the position in 1979 when the union movement was dominated by heavy industry uh, extraction industries and uh, a lot of the most key elements of the trade union movement were in the private sector now out of the six and a half million trade union members five million are in the public sector and only around 1.25 million are in the private sector so that gives you an indication as to how much weaker the unions are now from where they were um in the late 70s early 80s because not only has the number gone down but the numbers in the key industries and the numbers who are organizing unions of the most productive elements of the working class who have the most potential economic power to assert those numbers have gone down and not only that to add you know, a, a trifecta of misery there's also the fact that the that layer of uh, working class militants that used to sustain a lot of the struggle and bring new layers of people into it that layer has been almost completely extirpated that with the the working class man or woman who becomes a leader on the shop floor became a key thing for hr and personnel departments to make sure didn't develop or if they did they were shuffled off to a new department or just out and out fired very very quickly and there's been various attempts to revive that tradition so far to only a very very limited extent so we're in a situation now where we've got a much smaller union movement much smaller in the most um, productive sections of the working class and much smaller in terms of its ability to actually exert power over the production process and therefore exert leverage over the capitalists themselves because as we have seen we were covering in the COVID update some of the delusions of the so-called Marxist groups. Well, one of the biggest delusions in Britain was the idea that we could somehow replace um, steel workers and um, uh, coal miners, 
dockers, shipbuilders, etc., with office workers in the public sector. Just simply not the same economic power whatsoever. And there's been various attempts to try and look at like how well, how do we revive uh, the trade union movement? Um, there are, of course, historical examples to draw upon, but so far, anybody who tries to revive it going through the traditional structures of the unions and the and the umbrella body known as the Trades Union Congress is met with just a bureaucratic zombie, which is all the hierarchy of the trade union movement is now. The official unions are only ever really concerned with basically protecting what they've got. And that's really all that they can do, although all that they're willing to do. So I will pause there because I've spoken for quite a bit about the British experience, but do you want to jump in with the the Canadian overview? Well, just briefly, um, I, I I think a lot of this stuff, the stuff in Canada parallels that in the UK, like reading about labor history in Canada, you actually find that um, a lot of the big labor rights wins first happened in the UK and then came to Canada, which makes sense because there was such a close connection between the countries for so long, and there still is in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, as it stands right now, so the reason why density really went down in Canada was as a result of the free trade agreement with uh, the U.S.-Mexico um, in in the 80s, um, which just caused the deindustrialization of the country. Um, companies had originally come to Canada in order to um, access the Canadian market, which because of a, a very vibrant class history of class struggle um, had very high wages. Um, and so they wanted to access the market, but they couldn't uh, get their products through the tariffs that were in place. And so they jumped the, they jumped the, the boundary between the U.S. and Canada, established all of these uh, businesses throughout Canada, including the rural areas in Canada, which actually used to be very vibrant and very economically healthy because of this reason. And that led to that and the fact that there was, um, you know, a good history of class struggle and working class activism, especially since we took in a lot of socialist um, uh, workers from Europe. Like, so for instance, the, the Finnish uh, socialists came, a lot of Jewish socialists in Toronto, for instance, like there was a lot of immigration, which really, a lot of socialist immigration, which really um, created a lot of vibrancy within the labor movement in Canada in the earlier stages. In any case, uh, free trade happened, all of the companies left towards the United States or and predominantly Mexico, which deindustrialized the country and really broke the private sector unions. Um, so at this point, um, density has been pretty consistent over the last 20 years. Um, overall, it's at a slight decline. Um, it's standing at 31% overall in 2020. Um, but this amount is only so high because of very high rates of public sector unionization, which is at like 77, 78%. Uh, private sector uh, union density has been on the decline for decades and decades, and it's currently at like 16%. Um, and I think that we're going to, like, I think that um, the the public sector unionization rates are going to decline as well because they've pretty much platformed at 78%. And uh, now that uh, public sector is the vanguard, which it wasn't historically in Canada, um, all the gains that they got was led by the productive workers. So they would first get it and then the public sector would fight and get the same. Um, now that they're the vanguard and they lack, um, you know, economic power as unproductive workers, I mean, they don't like all power, but they they don't have their hands on the main levers of power in capitalism. Um, they can't 
they're not going to be able to protect their gains without the productive workers. So I think we're going to, and also with the clawback of state services, that will just mean like less employment within the public sector and more hiring of casualized labor, which means smaller unions. So it's going to be, I think the fact that the public sector density is still so high is a testament to the strength of the labor movement in Canada and um, the fact that we were able to create quite a robust welfare welfare state. But I think that without the productive workers, those gains will definitely be lost. Um, so it's a bad situation. Um, like the unions are, as you said, very bureaucratized. They have a very, dis- the, the private sector unions at least, have a very dis- disaffected um, base. Um, you know, in my experience, speaking to people in private sector unions and kind of viewing it from afar as well. Um, Yeah, like there isn't a lot, there isn't any more kind of member activism. And I think that the unions have kind of evolved to prevent that from happening. So their constitutions are um, intentionally created so that it's difficult to, for a worker to move up into leadership um, where it could be a lot easier. Um, and also increasingly difficult to challenge leadership. Um, and I think actually this is getting worse with a few things that I'm going to speak about. Like, for instance, a lot of the private sector unions and public sector unions are incorporating ridiculous things like anti-racism into their um, kind of raison d'être. And that I think that is, um, I think ostensibly it's to prevent racism, but I think in actuality it's going to be used against the workers to prevent them from trying to take over the structures of unions. Yeah, surprise, surprise, bureaucratic initiatives turned out to be anti-worker. Um, who would have seen it coming? <laughs> that thing's exactly right. Yeah, they're, they're oh, not going to benefit them at all. <laughs> So do we want to go into just an overview of uh, weaknesses and strengths then? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that, there's some serious enthusiasm in, in, in your voice there. I take it you've got a hell of a lot of strengths in the strength column. I actually don't have that many. I only have like one or two. And they're very. And I, I think that those strengths are actually kind of weaknesses at the same time, so I'm not really sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to list read out my whole stupid list. But, I mean... Essentially, I think the biggest weakness within the labor movement in Canada, and I'm sure you see this in the UK, is that it's dominated by the public sector and unproductive workers. Um, so it just it's made uh, in, it, it's made impotent because of that reason, um, and everything just flows from there. Yeah, it's I mean it is exactly the same as the numbers I was going through earlier would suggest, and the. The biggest, I would say, weakness is that there has been just zero expansion into growing areas of the economy, or where there has been, it's been as, as a result of like residual older deals that the unions have had. So, for instance, we've had this huge expansion in like delivery services, especially over the last year, and you see almost you see a little bit of labour action around it, but all these new courier companies are almost entirely untroubled by any attempt at unionization. And that's, there's various different factors engaged around that. Uh, but the consistent failure to organize effectively in the public, in the private sector is the biggest day-to-day weakness, as you said. Exactly, yeah. And once you've, because you cannot exercise the same 
societal level leverage as you used to be able to do in the 70s and uh, even into the early 80s with hospital workers, civil servants and teachers, no matter what certain left and Marxist groups think. I've been in some of those strikes where we did manage to get teachers, civil servants and some medical staff all out on the same days and sometimes even to great effect of great number the great numbers that went on strike over pensions for instance in the latter part of 2011 I was involved in a lot of that and yeah the numbers on the streets looked impressive for a day but ultimately it didn't cause capital's bottom line to get hit which is what was happening in the uh, periods all the way up to the middle 80s which was that the capitalists' ability to generate profit was being hit consistently by working-class action. Not only did that make them determined to destroy the workers, at certain points the workers' power was such so great that they couldn't do anything but make temporary concessions. We didn't even get a temporary concession, and the union leaders capitulated very, very quickly um, because of the the weakness of the public sector layer in the unions. We We don't have the same ability to enforce... Um, uh, economic power over the capitalists that our that, that our predecessors did. It just doesn't. It just doesn't exist in the same way. Yeah, I, I think the same thing happened in Ontario in the '90s. We had something called the Days of Action, um, and it got out huge numbers of people. There was rolling strikes in cities throughout Ontario, but it was just mostly public sector. And so um, today, Marxists and leftists are like, this was such a significant. Um, chapter in labor history but what really happened was nothing like um, the the cutbacks that were proposed and that were protested were by and large still carried through and the government that um, the Mike Harris government and conservative uh, provincial premier um, that proposed the cuts was reelected <laughs> so it, it didn't accomplish anything and the reason is because these workers just don't they 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 don't like I mean, it, like how how would you how would you characterize the power of unproductive workers? So I wouldn't say that they're powerless, but I just don't think that they have as I mean, do they just have less power? Is that a good way of understanding their position vis-a-vis -vis the productive well, I workers? Would, I would say that the the less they have less power because of their where they are in the production process, which is that they're not in it, right? Basically. Um, for in a lot of cases, certainly I wasn't when I was working in the civil service. We're not we're not involved in the productive process at all. Um, some layers of the of the public sector have a little bit more ability to disrupt. So, for instance, in, in mid twenty twelve, my union PCS did uh, as there was the, in the run up to the London Olympics, there was a walkout of border control staff who were in the PCS union. Now, that immediately caused a panic because a lot of people were coming into the country for a major sporting event. And the civil servants in the relevant department, the senior civil servants, suddenly cobbled together a deal to provide more jobs on the, in, on the border posts. Now, those people, because of the situation, that layer of workers, had a little bit more leverage because they were suddenly facing an influx into the country and the government couldn't afford for the border queues to be stretching out the other side of the airport. Yeah. So they had a little bit more leverage in that moment. Generally, though, um, most of the public sector, so like the teachers do have some leverage, but only insofar as that they can make 
they can uh, close down the schools, therefore making uh, huge millions of working class people have to keep their children at home. Therefore, one of them has to stay at home. So you take other people out of the workplace through the application of that pressure. But that's a very unsustainable way of doing strike action. Yeah. And also we've seen during the pandemic that it actually doesn't really affect production that much. Like no, no, the, not the, really. the teachers have been in a state enforced strike for the last year in some places in the world and production has gone and on. It hasn't affected production. Yeah. So it's limited. Yeah, I think a better way of understanding it, in my opinion, is that um, it's it's a negotiable, they, they kind of do negotiable work for capitalism. Like, um, I think capitalism can kind of pause unproductive work when it's politically more useful to them and then get it going when it's when it when it stops um when it stops uh, having that use so uh, i think that unproductive workers are definitely necessary for the functioning of bourgeois society but it, that doesn't mean it they're, they're they're necessary for the functioning of the productive economy uh, which is yeah. what the yeah, society the, is based on yeah the capitalists can take the hit for a few days or even a few weeks if they can if there's a big enough reason then they will and um, they'll just deal with it. But they're not going to be able to deal with workers that stop the creation of commodities or come in the way of the realization of profits on those commodities. Like that's not something that they can tolerate for a significant amount of time. Certainly not a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, other, the other example I was going to give where a comparison with the productive and the unproductive parts of the workforce is that it was in 2009 there was um, an oil refinery strike in Britain in a place called Lindsay. And it was over the importation of Italian workers to do the, to do the same job but on lower wages. And this looks like suddenly there was going to be a rolling strike across refineries in the UK all the way across the UK. And as soon as it looked as if like all of the, our significant number of workers was just going to walk out on strike, no matter what the union said, because this was not an official action. The official, the, the road to official action in the UK, you have to go through so many legal loopholes and go through so many, uh, over so many hurdles that it basically kills any mood of militancy by the time you've got there. This was like a spontaneous walkout. It looked like it was going to spread. So the oil company owners settled instantaneously because they cannot afford a, de a sudden delay in the refining production and distribution of um, fuel in Britain that's that's something they couldn't afford to let go on so that was settled very very quickly yeah so I guess like bringing it back to unions therefore um, the labor movement needs more private sector unionization especially the productive workers who are mostly all private sector um, and as you were saying, they're the unions for some, I don't know why, like they're not doing the main thing they should be doing as unions, which is growing and unionizing more workers. Like they're basically in Canada, they basically just let themselves bleed out. Um, and, and they just like, they don't, they don't really do anything. Um, and I, I think it's just because the unions are not run anymore, primarily for, by the members and for the members, even though obviously that was always a, Con unions have always been a contested space and so there was always this contradiction between what the leadership want and the membership wants and you know who was winning that contradiction was uh, like a, a um, subject to class struggle but now that the membership is completely dis disaffected like a lot of them view their unions as a, an insurance policy only they don't yeah. view it as a vehicle to gain power um 
I think that has resulted in unions that are not, they're not even able to defend their own structures anymore. Like they're not, they don't have any self-preservation instinct. <laughs> yeah, well, should we move then to talk about uh, the limitations of trade unionism um, as a as a whole, um, particularly like the, the limitations of it, obviously under a capitalist system, uh, because we've covered a bit there about strengths and weaknesses and like the um, the current state of play in Britain and Canada. But so it's important to emphasize, as we've both hinted at in our statements on it so far, that from the very beginning, trade unionism is a defensive response from the working class, because it's a defensive response to the incredible level of hyper exploitation talking in the in British terms that was there in the early period of the 19th century and the attempts at forming unions were always very very brutally repressed often by direct application of the force the armed forces of the state in Britain a lot of the um, famous Infamously, the uh, early some of the earlier union activists, known the Tolpuddle Martyrs, who were agricultural workers, were deported to Australia, which, which when the British ruling class still ran Australia as a as a penal colony, and weren't allowed back for decades. But eventually, you start to see uh, unions taking root because the working class keeps resisting the attempts by the capitalists in those early factories to e- ever increase the rate of exploitation, and. So slowly you start to see um, trade unionism develop and it develops first in, as we were saying earlier, the areas of the working class that have the most economic leverage with regard to the production process. So one of the reasons why Britain becomes a, a, a workforce that's, whose union movement is defined by um, what's known as craft trade unionism is that the early unionization efforts were were most successful were in those areas of the workforce where the workers had a specific skill there weren't that many of them and therefore if 10 or 20 of them walked off the job in a factory a whole productive process would shut down because they couldn't just train up five ten more people from the factory floor to do that job so then the capitalists had to start bargaining with and these were engineers unions they were um like um very specific elements of the um of like production process so like as i said engineers you've got like carpenters unions other very skilled workers started to form unions that were essentially small scale organizations that could exercise a good deal of leverage over the, over the productive process so that in itself is of course a step forward but then of course the it's a double-edged sword it's also a limitation because then what you've got is you've got a layer of the working class which is then separate from the bulk of the working class and is by the dint of its place in the productive process is get is getting slightly better treatment so craft unionism becomes the dominant form of unionism in britain for a long time and it's not really until the end of the 19th century that you start to see what was referred to as the unskilled working class. So the average factory floor worker, the average dockyard worker, um, the the miners, etc., start to really increase their level of trade union um, organization. So it takes like most of the century for that to happen and um, for us to move from being specifically a craft union based 
uh, country to one with more general one of more generalized trade unionism and but that takes almost a century of struggle and back and forth to actually get there so straight away there you have a limitation in the form of like the different the, the way of the which the workers organized and the way that the capitalists quite cleverly responded sometimes by pitting one layer of workers against another and more generally i would say that the the overall limitation is that what is it that the workers are actually asking for they are asking for uh, the capitalists to essentially uphold their ends of the bargain that they are asking for their they're pushing for the most that they can get under the wages system they're pushing for the most that they can get under capitalism uh, and sometimes workers have to fight incredibly hard just to get the employer to do what it actually said what they actually said they were going to give to the worker under the terms of hiring so and also even when you get a better deal with an employer every victory is temporary because the employer themselves as a capitalist are under pressure from the system from their shareholders from rival capitalists to cut down labor costs as much as possible so any deal for the working class is very very temporary even with the strongest union set up yeah exactly right like i the the whole structure of trade unionism is to segment the working class into different trades and uh to enable a negotiation with uh, with capitalism, try to get labor power paid for at the highest possible price in relation to value. So by definition, you're you're breaking up the class and you're not challenging the value form. So unions are not revolutionary organizations. They just can't be um, in and of themselves. So they're they're only ever like able to make limited gains for workers um and that also opens up to them to the possibility of being reactionary because they are not revolutionary they can at times be reactionary and this is something that lenin talked a lot about um about reactionary unions existing it, it's just a natural kind of like uh result of the fact that you have what is essentially a a structure that is not able that is structurally not going to be challenging capital as such like it it can fall back into reactionaryism or reaction rather another problem i think that is inherent within the within trade unionism is that it's um it uses the state as a mediator um and it it so it for it forces the workers to uh, figure out a way of bargaining with capitalists, which by definition lowers the expectations right away, right? Yeah. So you have to be quote unquote realistic, like because the state is mediating your argument, but the state isn't ever going to destroy itself, right? Like, so the, it's never going to cede its power to the workers. So it's not really an arbit it's not a neutral mediator. It's on the side of capital. And so whatever deal the workers get will always kind of be a loss. Um, it's never going to be as much as they could get, right? If they were to take power. But that's not going to happen within a, a state-mediated negotiation with capitalists. It's never going to happen. Um, but does that mean that they're completely useless or that they are, they are, ca they are st capitalist structures in the end? 
Well, let's let's go through that argument first, shall we? Because it's an argument that at certain points, um, usually when I'm feeling at my most um, uh, frustrated with the um, the current political setup in the unions, um, you you start to think, oh well, maybe these are just wholly capitalist structures. But and and of course, this is a point of view which is put forward by various. Uh, perspectives on the uh, the so-called revolutionary uh, socialist movement and or communist movement and this has been put forward by anarchists it's been put forward by left communists it's even been put forward by some trotskyists this is the idea that it's that the, the entire union structure is not a working class structure it is something which has been wholly absorbed by the state and is just used as a stabilization mechanism for capital have I summed up that argument fairly, do you think? Yeah, exactly. Like, I've heard left communists um, put it this way, like, uh, unions just exist to make labor safe for capital, essentially. So that argument is quite common. You see it a lot online, often from extremely online people. And <laughs> like myself. <laughs> and like yourself, too, Alex. Uh, we were only extremely online for the purposes of class struggle, though. That's different. <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason I tweet. Uh, and we're very, we're very self-aware. This makes this makes us immune to most criticism. Um, the the argument, in my view, falls down because the point of view of capital has to be considered here. So, how does capital see the unions? Now, first of all, capital doesn't initially in the, in any case want there to be workers organizations they try just banning them and repressing them for a long time the later move into negotiations after they were after the com combinations of workers were finally were legalized in 1824 here um, was was a stage that was forced on them so they don't want to have to negotiate with these organizations of workers they are compelled to do so in the end because they calculated it would be better for them to actually negotiate than have these uh, massive militant strikes breaking out. But at the same time, they're forced into it. And then with the growth of trade unions, you can see this constant battle inside, this constant um, dual duality in terms of the capitalist class's relations to them. On the one hand, there is something to the argument to say that the uh, union structures do it essentially acts as a stabilization mechanism for capital they can do that as you were saying unions because of the nature of um the business they're in and under a capitalist society can sometimes end up playing a reactionary role but at the same time the because they're organizations of a mass of working class people yeah. um they are regarded by the capitalists rightly as something which is also inherently dangerous to them because any combination of workers dedicated towards gaining a greater, a greater share of or gaining back their surplus value is a danger to capital. So in my view, it falls down into the, the fact that they, you need to adopt a dialectical analysis on this, which is there are parts of trade unionism which are very useful to capitalism in terms of their ability to actually use it as a stabilization mechanism use the relationship they have, particularly with the trade union leaders who are often incorporated into the bourgeois state. Many of them here become, you know, members of the House of Lords if they're very, very good for, good for capital. 
they lean on them to suppress struggle, to uh, root out and blacklist union militants, for instance. There's plenty of cases of that happening in Britain. So they lean on the trade union leaders a lot, but trade unions themselves retain, are still regarded as something which is very potentially dangerous for capital. And that's the duality. That's the, the contradiction that under capitalism cannot be solved. So because of that, you cannot just say that the trade unions are wholly and only about being stabilization methods and of, of for capitalism. Because if they were, then capital wouldn't have all the myriad of laws against them that it does in, Brit in the British case and in the American case as well. And I'm sure in Canada too, there are some laws like that too. And they wouldn't also be very, very paranoid about union expansion into unorganized productive areas of the workforce. Yeah, I think also like um, in addition to looking at it, looking at it through capitalists perspective, um, one also needs to look at it through the perspective of working class people um, who are not class conscious just as a default. Right. Um, and so I think unions in their when they do their best um, and Lenin says this, that unions evolved out of the this default state of isolation, which um, capitalism throws working class people into when, you know, so they evolve out of that disunity and they were the earliest form of working class organization that allows working class people to not see themselves just as an isolated worker on the line, but as part of a greater whole. And so they're never going to be able to take that process all the way to full class consciousness because it's a trade union. But that it's it still can start that process off for workers, and I and it's the only way it's ever happened. Like historically speaking, when workers have sought to improve their working conditions, they've they've done so through trade unions. Um, and so I don't know if it makes sense to completely dismiss that um, to say that um, workers' aspirations, you know, as as subdued as they've perhaps been. Um, and their militancy in regards to those aspirations should be like should be dismissed as a bourgeois. Um, I don't know if that makes sense from a Marxist perspective. Like I think it's more dialectical than that. I think that there's a seed of working class consciousness there um, that's struggling against the constraints of capitalism, but can never overcome those constraints because it's encapsulated within that structure. But if we can enter that structure, if we can permeate that structure as the Bol the Bolsheviks did in Russia, for instance, we can um, change the the quality of what's going on there. You know, have that quantitative to qualitative change that Hegel talks about. Yeah, exactly. And there is, um, as always, there is an Engels quote for every occasion. And I, I'd like to, I'll read one now because it's from his his, his article from 1881, uh, where he wrote about trade unions under capitalism for a long since defunct newspaper called the Labour Standard. Um, and there's a quote from it, which is very, a, a very key for what we've just been discussing. So I'll read this out now. Quote begins, uh, thus it is through the action of trade unions that the law of wages is enforced as against the employers and that the workplace of any well-organized trade are enabled to obtain at least approximately the full value of the working power which they hire to their employer, 
and that with, with the help of state laws, the hours of labour are made at least not to exceed too much that maximum length beyond which the working power is prematurely exhausted. This, however, is the utmost trade unions at the present organised can hope to obtain, and that by constant struggle only, by an immense waste of strength and money, and then the fluctuations of trade once every ten years at least, break down for the moment what has been conquered, and the fight has to be fought over again. It is a vicious circle from which there is no issue. The working class remains what it was, and what for our chartist forefathers were not afraid to call it, a class of wage slaves. It is thus, it is, it, it is this to be the final result of all this labour, self-sacrifice and suffering. Is this to remain forever the highest aim of the British workman? Or is the working class of this country at last to attempt breaking through this vicious circle and to find an issue out of it in a movement for the abolition of the wages system altogether? And I picked that out because I think that very neatly sums up like the key, the key contradiction, don't you think? Yeah, the, exactly. I think it's exactly it. And I and so I, I, I don't think like I don't think Engels, it doesn't seem like from that quote, at least, and from what I've read of him, that he viewed unions as bourgeois, right? Like he definitely, definitely viewed the leaders as bourgeois and Lenin yeah. did as well. Uh, great Lenin quote about the Western labor leaders, actually. But anyways, um, before I read that, just to finish the thought, um, they were never, they're never, they, they are contradictory. Um, and I think that we'll find that the nature of most class struggles are contradictory under capitalism. Um but that's how history moves forward through working through the contradictions and pushing them as far as you can at the moment. And then sometimes there, you know, as in, in Russia, for instance, in 1917, there's a qualitative leap. But, um, you know, I until we can build up to that point, um, I think that working through the contradictions and moving through them and pushing them to their limit, um, as trade unions can do when they're at the best of times, is very valuable for the proletariat. For the proletariat, like I don't know, there's nothing. Um, there, there's. It's only good if we can reduce the amount of working hours working people have to do, or get them access to better wages, or get them health care, get them more education, things like that. That will only empower the working class, right? So, you know, capitalism sows the seeds of its own destruction, right? And so the more we can we can get that them to do that, the better and the stronger the class will be and set up a better situation for a revolutionary moment um, or, re re it, you know, I wouldn't say moment that this is a building up towards a revolutionary process. Yeah, it's just worth mentioning at this stage that the the uh, the transformation in consciousness that can occur by actually combining together with your fellow workers to win something from the employer that is that i think it's lenin's phrase which is um an ounce of practice is worth a ton of theory that ability to actually combine together as a class and win that is something which that's invaluable for workers to be able to do and that's why there's so many laws against it and such harsh penalties for actually carrying out successful actions especially successful actions that go against the uh the will of the trade union leaders which is what a lot of the most successful struggles in britain post-world war ii and before it um were like which is that the the workers themselves were basically just prepared to tell the union leaders to fuck off and that they were going to walk off the job anyway until they got a bar uh, get a better bargain from the employer and 
again, even on the most basic level, even if you're just organizing to get like five minutes added to a break or something, for a group of workers who've never won anything before and are unfamiliar with collective struggle, that in itself can be a gigantic step forward. So you cannot just dismiss that out of hand. Absolutely not. I, I don't think people understand what, I, I mean, obviously they don't, like understand what it's like to be working class. Like, I mean, um, they don't, a lot of people who are working class have never had a chance to be in a leadership role or they've never had a chance to do, you know, things like public speaking or negotiate something or, you know, understand legal terms and and participating in union activism, even if, if it's for relatively minute gains, it really develops people's skills and also people's confidence. And it allows people to exercise their rational ability in a way that they may, may never had have in their ent entire life. And so it creates strength within, it creates strong people within stronger people, men and women within the working class that can someday perhaps like take on a, a, a more revolutionary leadership role. And I think that a lot of the, um, you know, and I think that's actually what's happened, like in the Russian revolution, for instance, like um, a lot of the leaders of uh, that revolution and a lot of the main activists came from a trade union background. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, the, a lot of the, key leaders in like um the the soviets in um petrograd what became leningrad and moscow um were people who'd come up through the factories and they were the people upon whom the the bolshevik party came to depend because they were the the key people who they won over was the most militant layer of the working class that's when the, the the Bolsheviks actually started winning control of the the workers' councils and the citywide Soviets was when they won the union the union workers the, the union militants over to their side, and that's when they started making progress. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. and when and one of the reasons why the the revolution is. Uh, almost defeated, but all, but very, very very much weakened, is that that layer of the most militant, politically confident workers were often the first to volunteer for the the horrors of the civil war. So a whole generation of them got wiped out, and that's one of the things that you need to take into account when analysing that period. But if I go into that, we'll be uh, we'll be distracted somewhat. But you said you had a, um, a, 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 a quote to demonstrate a lot of this from Lenin himself. Well, no, I mean it, it, just a quote about the. The labor leaders specifically. Oh, go <laughs> throw it in there. So he says um, he calls them the craft union, narrow-minded, selfish, case-hardened, uh, covetous, and petty bourgeois labor aristocracy, imperialist-minded, and imperialist corrupt leadership. Of um, speaking about the Western labor leaders specifically, not so much in Russia. So I thought it was a little funny. You, you can cut that out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's still still certainly I, I accurate. Think I, only I, now, I think it still stands <laughs> very much so. Only now they're not as good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, now they're 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 made stupid from the lack of um, pressure from their base. So they're just not of not as smart anymore. They're lazy, too lazy. Even to be. even the union right wingers aren't that good anymore. Ex well, yeah, abso absolutely. They don't need to be because there's no pressure. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I wanted to just um, drop in was the. Um, I said earlier on that the that union and working class pressure and working class militancy has always moved in cycles, even in the historically relatively brief period of which we've been in uh, fully developed capitalism. And Engels in a, um, no, sorry, this is Marx, actually. Marx himself, in a letter to his 
uh, collaborator with Wilhelm Liebknecht um, wrote in 1878 that um, the English working class has become gradually more and more deeply demoralized by the period of corruption since 1848 and had at last got to the point when they were nothing more than the tail of the great liberal party, of the henchmen of the capitalists. Their direction had gone completely over into the hands of the corrupt trade union leaders and professional agitators. These fellows shouted and howled behind Gladstone, Bright, Mandela, Morley and the whole gang of factory owners, etc., in majorum gloriam, to the greater glory of the Tsar as the emancipator of nations, while they never raised a finger for their own brothers in South Wales, condemned to die of starvation by the mine owners. And then he just angrily concludes, wretches, with an exclamation point. Um, but I read that out because what he's talking about there is that because Marx and Engels come to England in the late 1840s and they immediately get involved in the what the first um, very radical, truly working class movement of the period, which is the, the so-called Chartist movement, which was demanding certain economic and uh, political reforms of the of from the bourgeoisie, and this was this was largely defeated, but it was a very militant, widespread workers' movement. And after its defeat, you get thirty odd years of um, repression and stagnation of working class struggle. So you get that initial flurry up to the 1840s, then you get a huge defeat uh, when the Chartist movement goes down, and then you, for over 30 years, you get essentially um, as a period of demoralization and decay. And this is in 1878 that he's writing that, so it's his getting very frustrated with the, the state of class struggle in Britain. But after he wrote that, no, about just before just before he um, actually died, you start to see the reviving of the movement by the m new layers of the workforce actually getting active. So like the previously unorganized, so-called unskilled working class suddenly starts to organize itself and conduct mass strikes. Then you see the whole union movement revive again. So the period we're in now, this is not new. Yeah, yeah. This is not new. Such an essential point. People think, as like, people think that what's happening right now with the precarization of labor and like gig jobs and whatever it's like historically unprecedented like how will the unions ever recover like how will labor ever organize itself under these these conditions like these <laughs> things have been way way worse for the working class <laughs> like people have no idea how bad it was like for instance in pre-revolutionary russia or even like you know 70 years ago in canada for instance like there's no historical perspective no, and you need that. It's vital. Yeah, and it, it's it's disempowering to have that perspective because it, when you when you see history instead through the Marxist lens as um, one of overall progress and one that evolves over time and um, you know solves its contradictions and creates new synthesis and moves forward, um, that is an optimistic way, and it's a hopeful way of seeing our reality and and it's a it's a um, accurate way of seeing the role the working class has in history which is progressive right so um when you lose that view then you forget the fact that the working class is progressive and that that they are the only progressive force and through uh working class action like that's how we push history forward but if you think that's never happened before and you don't have an awareness of how much it happened um you just fall into hopelessness yeah, which is where a lot of people 
go these days you there's a lot that's happened in the last 10 years where you've seen people go from like ultra left positions to complete passivity and despair within about a year um because that's that's the, what happens when you get movements which are rooted in and led by the petty bourgeoisie which is a class which bounces between the ruling class and the working class in terms of what it's influenced by. So it has a tendency, as Marx identified as early as uh, the late 1840s, when he was talking about the um, the paralysis of the um, La Montagne, the, uh, the mountain, the old original French um, sort of kind of social democratic party in the face of the, the rise of Napoleon III. Um, he identifies it as being par paralyzed because it's led by this petty bourgeois layer, which goes from like wild statements of utopianism to utter despair inside the same speech, because that's the nature of a class that is continually bounced between the two major classes in society and has no independent role of its own. Yeah, the petty bourgeoisie is full of completely hysterical people. They're not serious people. No one should listen to them. They're they're really dumb. Like, but. You know, the thing is, working class people, and you've said this to me as well, like, they don't have the option to be hopeless. No. <laughs> you know, they don't, they are, um, you know, I, I speak to tons of, you know, working class people like, for my job, and they're all extremely, like, uh, hopeful about the future, about bettering their children's future, about supporting their families. Like, they uh, don't view, like, their existence as some kind of dead end. Like, they... You know, they work hard every single day and they have to. And I mean, I guess, you know, I speak to union workers, so maybe that adds to their hopeful, their sense of hopeful, hopefulness. But they do have a view towards the future to make more gains in various ways. And yeah, like make sure that their children have better futures. Um, the petty bourgeoisie is like, yeah, no one has kids anymore. And like, you know, there is no future. <laughs> and, it, you know, like it's so it's such a narrow, silly perspective and um it can only be uh created by people who are just like yeah hysterical emotionally driven and like have never had to work hard for a thing in their life and don't know what what that's like well this is exactly and this is exactly how it's always been see the the class compositions in societies such as britain canada the united states france germany name any other country in the capitalist world which is now most of the world and you see the same political formations emerge and the same political actions happen and the, the, the same classes behaving, behaving in the same way. It doesn't matter whether it's an Indonesian petty bourgeois movement, a, an American petty bourgeois movement, a Canadian one or a British one. Now admittedly the national characteristics will be re reflected in that but it'll make all the same mistakes and it'll, it'll adopt all the same wild swings between ultra-leftism and ultra-right and ultra-opportunism because that's the nature of the class that we're dealing with here. And by having the Marxist perspective, you can actually understand that and interpret it properly and not fall into despair, which is, which is what the system wants you to do. Uh, isolated desperation is great for capital. It, exactly, exactly. They're, they're just supporting capital, which they're definitely going to do in a period of low-class struggle. So hopelessness, yeah. hopelessness is reactionary. <laughs> It's exactly. exactly. Hopelessness is reactionary, as is uh, millenarianism conspiracy theories. Um, shall we look then at the, um, the the biggest challenges to unionization that like we've 
come across in our own experience and is talked about more widely across the union movement particularly this is going to be something which is mainly focused on the the western world being that's where our experience comes from but you can extrapolate from this um because the the first one i want to talk about is the what's been termed for many years now for at least four decades globalization and the the actual real terms impact of that which is the ability of capital to shift its um, certainly its production facilities to almost anywhere in the world in a very rapid fashion so if there's a strike at a particular factory and the capitalist has the ability to shut down and move production 5,000 miles away then that is definitely something that they will do and that is something that happened over and over again in Britain in the 80s and the 90s so that is a huge problem for trade unionism particularly coming out of a period where um, in the 40 odd years after World War II there was a degree more stability but even then that stability didn't last very long so the globalization and the ability to move jobs and production around the world I don't think is something that any of the unions has really responded to particularly well, if at all. Uh, am I am I being fair or accurate there? Yeah, so I think the, the current unions grew up in a time of um, relative stability. They're, you know, Ford's production. Um, they got used to the fact that labor was relatively strong and they there was the huge kind of threat of the USSR, which you know, is an unacknowledged but very real thing that strengthened the working classes throughout the world and scared the bourgeoisie. Um, And I think indirectly or directly led to a lot of the concessions we saw um, in the post-World War II period. Um, So they kind of got used to that paradigm. And now that labor has been, the USSR is done, um, labor has been defeated. um, And also there was... um, the Great Depression, um, which, you know, resulted in the consolidation of a lot of capital. But when that happened at the time, like the labor movement was also on its way up. It had been militant for a few decades before and had actually won some major victories prior to that point. And so they were kind of they were able to deal with that. But now we're at a point where labor is weak and we're having these huge monopolies pop up you know, companies that are more powerful than ever um, that can, you know, just shut down a factory um, if they see some kind of labor organization happening. So, yes, like these are these are problems which are new for our generation and maybe the last generation, but they're definitely not unprecedented. Like in the earlier years of uh, the labor movement, like in Canada in like the 18 uh, late 1800s, um, it would be standard practice that a capitalist would shut down. A fa- and like at that time, the factories were small. There wasn't that many people. But if they saw a union being formed, uh, they would just shut it down. Like, <laughs> and that would be it. So these are not unprecedented practices. And the labor movement was able to figure out a way of dealing with it before. But I just think it needs it kind of needs to refigure it out um, in the modern era. Yeah. And also, I mean, the the direct link there. <clears throat> is also to another challenge which we um, talk, are going to talk about, which is the um, the casualized nature of employment. And this is something which is um, very much linked to um, what we were just discussing a moment ago, which is, the, which is globalization. The ability to shift production anywhere you like is also accompanied by capital wanting an extremely flexible workforce where they can't outsource or they can't offshore 
production or distribution. Um, they want to make sure that the workers that they do have employed, they either don't employ them at all because they come from an agency, or they employ them on a contract which basically enables you to, as the enables you as the employer, to essentially ease them out of the workforce by giving them zero hours a week, or you're employed on a temporary uh, basis by an agency, not formally by the employer. So a lot of the major employers want to actually minimise. Uh, certainly in recent years, the number of actual employees they've got on the books. And they do that by adopting all manner of dodges around uh, the law, which is um, by you know, using temp workers for long periods of time in jobs which are not temporary, by using uh, gig workers to fill in gaps, by um, having as casualized a selection of contracts as they possibly can to enable very easily to both shed jobs and then bring people in again rapidly when you need people to come in to cover um, peak periods of business. All of that is also crucial to globalization as well. Now there are of course, there, there are ways around that too though, which is that the certain things are not going to be able to be outsourced or offshored. So like uh, the massive retail distribution centers, which have grown and grown and grown in recent years, they can't send those, the British retail distribution centers, they can't send those to China. They can't send those overseas. It needs to be brought in, if it's being brought into the country, it needs to be distributed and delivered by people here. That's part of the profit making process. So they can't get rid of that work. So once you need to identify like the war well, can they can they offshore this can they just snap their fingers and move it is it something they're likely to do and in many cases the answer will actually be no so you can go on to campaign for union rights in a lot of these certainly these distri retail distribution delivery companies because that is a workforce that even if it's all on temp contracts, those jobs are permanent. The employer is just lying and pretending that they're not. Yeah. I, and they do that a lot. I think this whole thing around gig work and contract work and temp work, I think it is a real issue and it is on the increase, no doubt. And I think it will be the main way in which uh, capitalism seeks to solve its latest prof pro profitability crisis. But I do think that it is over-exaggerated. I think most workers are actually full-time workers who never had a lot of job security, right? Who was always threatened with the specter of scabs, you know, and I think that we can kind of understand outsourcing as a way of, of like scabbing of, of, um, of, of just threatening labor, right? So I think those things were, most, most workers are still in, you know, position like in factories that are not going to just be closed on a whim, like, it's just not a realistic outlook for labor overall, okay? Like, so I, I don't, I think a lot of even unions have started really focusing in on the gig work and trying to unionize things like food delivery services. And I don't think that's bad. Like, I think that should happen. But I think you need to prioritize and you need to strategize. Like, you really should be going after workers that are not able to be, you know, spontaneous. Like, for, in, for instance, in Canada recently, a few months ago, like during the pandemic, the Postal Service Workers uh, Union in Canada tried to unionize the Fudora workers. And then when the union vote uh, got through and it was for the union, Fudora just shut down its app in Canada and then packed up, packed up, uh, just closed shop. Um they had done the same thing in Australia. So I don't know why the Postal Service Union um, didn't see that coming. 
Um, and wasted all their time trying to do it in Canada. Like, I understand why that would be, um, I, you know, strategically for the postal service workers, like they want to unionize that sector because it's a form of competition against them. But um, there's other things that like, for instance, we have huge Amazon factories that are not going to be closed down. And Amazon is a huge source of competition to the postal service workers in Canada. So, you know, those are, that, that I think that should be a higher priority. Like, you know, you need to look at things strategically and like, weigh the pros and cons um and but i think overall the image isn't one where most workers are just precarious and just lose our jobs and t- like that was the the reality at the beginning of capitalism but we're not like things have moved on since then like we've made gains and we're not going to lose them overnight just like that you know and we're never going to go back down to zero that's not the, the the process of history like things will be getting worse but they're never going to go back down to as bad as they were like even 60 years ago that's just not how history functions yeah they can't just snap their fingers and year zero it even however much they might like exactly to. um they could because there is that eternal thing there which is the resistance of the working class even if it might seem like it's at quite a low level at the moment if the attacks of the employers intensify then working class resistance always intensifies because their their floor has been raised they're not going to accept the same kind of treatment that workers in 1870s canada would have accepted you know, like the the big thing in Canada at the beginning of the labor movement was getting a nine hour day. Yeah, it was it was 12. Hours here, <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. No one's going to accept as a standard practice to work 12 hours like the, the eight hour ideal is there. And that's at least what the minimum will be like. That's what, what people are going to seek now. Like most people, they, they accept that as like given. Right. And, you know, like um, I have a. Um, when you speak to people who do work in Amazon, the Amazon factory, for instance, like um, they often speak about it's really bad conditions. Like they're worked really hard. Um, They can be fired quite easily. They're paid low wages. It's, it's very alienating and dehumanizing work, but they speak in terms of their rights as Canadians. You know, they're like, we're in Canada here. Like this isn't a third world country. Like we can't be treated like this. So they have higher expectations, you know, um, and I think that is the, I think that's what people are going to be working off of, not like the situation of even you maybe Chinese workers, for instance, like it's not going to be off that basis that we're working here in, you know, in the Western world. Am I being too optimistic? No, well, I would say to disagree slightly <clears throat> that the, the capitalists get away with a lot in areas where there's no organization whatsoever. Sure. Yeah. So there's areas in this country which maybe people are employed on you know permanent contracts but they are often pressured into doing nine ten eleven hour days in some of these areas um and where there's no union representation whatsoever i'll go back to the angles quote again where the union's not there to enforce just the basics like you were saying what are our rights as canadians well we don't have you know so such a, such things in Britain, we have good old fashioned British freedom. Um, but where there's no union to enforce that bare minimum, the capitalists will push to get away with anything. Um, and it doesn't and it doesn't matter if somebody objects, they can easily be sidelined or fired. Um, the question for me is that. And you were right to say this, which is that the unions need, if they are serious about actually growing again, need to identify areas where they can actually um, 
do that thing that Engels mentioned, which is the go in and actually enforce forced capital to behave by even just the existing laws. Yeah, but I think the point is that those laws and those expectations have been raised through decades of class struggle. So, like, what unions will now be in workers will now be seeking is a higher standard than what they would have sought, you know, 100 years ago, obviously, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's true. So they've raised the floor in that sense. Like, yes, of course, like, you only get the rights you fight for um, under capitalism. Um, but I'm just saying that, like, the expectation of, like, the, the, the historically specific, what's the word that Marx uses? The socially, what is it? The socially necessary. Right, exactly. The conditions of of like socially necessary like standards has been raised over time right so so i think like it's not all it's not gonna it, people are i think are a bit too apocalyptic about this stuff like i don't think that we're gonna be going back to like yeah there's gonna be there's always been a lot of abuses of the nature that you've cited for instance and without protection like a capitalist will abuse their power almost endlessly but um like, I think that there is something to be said that, like, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of a labor movement that made a lot of gains and we're not going to be knocked down like, you know, 100 pegs. Like, we're going to be knocked down a bit, but like people are going to like capitalists will have to knock us down a bit less than before because the standards are just expectations are just higher. And like what people expect out of their lives and their work lives is just a little better. It's not as high as it should be, but I just think it is it's better. Well, yes, uh, I, yeah, I think that's right. And also, look at also the, the effects of the the rising expectations in China, for instance, amongst the working class, where a lot of Western companies have actually looked to hyper exploit labor over many many years. You see consistently there uh, labor resistance increasing, um, to the point where some of the most um, rapacious capitalists are now looking to less developed countries to go and exploit labor there because they're not able to get away with some of the same shit that they used to in China because the Chinese working class have raised their standards by a via resistance. Yeah, exactly. And, and the Chinese proletariat also stands on the gains that were made for them. Like they also they also have higher standards because of the gains that happened under, you know, communist China and stuff like that. Right. Like actually communist China or like yeah. as close to <laughs> to it that it that it got. Well, the communist well, period. period the, sure. Say. OK. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I just think that um, I think that the new paradigm that is arising right now in terms of, you know, globalization and casualized labor and the type of like arrangements that we're seeing I think that like it might make some work actions more difficult than before I think the most you can say about about it is that like I think it might be difficult to just initiate a strike and you know but you can still do things like slowdowns you can still do things like like sabotage like you can you know do boycotts like there's a lot of different things that labor used to do very commonly that they don't do anymore. Like they just, they try to negotiate and then as a last, last, last resort, they'll strike. But like really as a last resort, like they'll they'll try to avoid it at all costs because it's it's a lot of work and it's costly to the union. Um, but yeah, like I can definitely see like the, the resurgence of things like good work strikes for the public sector and, you know, um, slowdowns and things like that, which was, were far more common before when union organizing and strikes were just illegal. Yeah, and I, I'd also add that the, the would 
there is going to be a revival of uh, trade unionism in Britain, but it's not going to come through the a lot of the more traditional unions, which are very hidebound, very set in completely outdated ways of working and totally unambitious with regards to organizing new layers in the workforce. What will happen is the same thing as has happened before, which is these workers will, fi will find and found new workers' organizations to come together and actually um, force recognition on the employers without reference to the existing union structure. So if you keep trying to go through the existing union structure, that's just a recipe for defeat and frustration. But what will happen is a lot of what you've just said, like the innovative ways of taking uh, action, will just be done by workers organising through new unions. We're already starting to see the emergence of it in Britain through like some of the sort of um, rank and file unions, like things like IWGB and others, um, which are quite small at the moment. But they're the ones who have at least been leading the most aggressive campaigns. So that will spread because the pressure that capital puts on workers makes struggle and fight back inevitable. And which is why we spend a lot of time on this podcast being against apocalypticism, because the uh, the working class will always resist because that is the dynamic. The, the, the capitalist never can just get away with pushing, pushing and pushing things down forever. Um, the workers do resist and they always find ways to resist. And then for Marxists and communists and people interested in actually it growing working class power, that's when you have to pay, that's what you have to pay attention to, not fall into the self-indulgence of apocalyptic mentality. Yeah, and to that point, I just th I think it's really important to remember that unions were never, were predominant, like the historical norm is actually casualized labor and precarious work, horrible working conditions, um, very few benefits, if any, and also the fact that unions were never really institutionalized like they are today. Like workers used to just get together and be like, we're the union, you deal with us. And that was the end of yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, unions are on the decline and they're stupid and they're completely like arthritic in their functioning. So if they're not able to serve the members anymore, the members will either form their own unions as they always have since the start of capitalism or they will take the unions over. And I, I think the latter is probably unlikely because of the... Um, the structural barriers within existing unions, um, like legally and politically and stuff like that. So I think the latter, as you've been outlining, is much more likely. But yeah, like this has happened before and it will happen again. Like we're not out of, we're still in capitalism. So history will still cycle again and again until we can go beyond it. Yeah, as 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 the Engels quote says, it's until it's, until you actually end up in a struggle for political power, this process is going to continue. Yeah, and it, it it's going to come up in maybe novel forms that we hadn't we we what has not happened in the past. Like, so a lot of people talk about how capitalism has been empowered by technology and stuff like that, and how they can spy on workers. But the thing is, workers have access to that technology as well. They have access to these new new modes of communication as well. So I'm sure that they'll put them all to a novel and innovative use for for the for proletarian gains, just as ca like capitalism puts it to their gains. Um, and I think you have to remember, too, that, yes, capitalism is highly monopolized and it is hi highly globalized, but that has that comes with weaknesses as well. It's not all strength. So, for instance, the, uh, capitalism, global capitalism depends very heavily on finance capital to enable its globalization, which makes it which is extremely precarious, like is always theatering on the edge. So 
it's strong, but it's also very weak, right? It's dialectical. And I think that where we can really make gains here is, is honing in on the cracks and the contradictions and pushing against them. And I think that's what labor will do. Yeah, and la- what is what labor always does. And so if you're any kind of Marxist, you can't just throw your hands in the air and despair and say there's no we have no faith in the working class anymore because historically and objectively speaking, that is an incorrect judgment. And it's and it is an incorrect judgment which will lead you to all kinds of extraordinary and stupid conclusions. And I just want to remind people that it's dehumanizing to yeah. see yeah. working class people and the class in that way. Like People are not just going to accept being trodden on and having um, their their living conditions degraded. Like it's just it's never going to like people are human beings like they're 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 going to eventually like stand up and it's going to become too much to bear. And like this is what has always happened. Um, And to say that like all we all we can do is go through elite politics which are ridiculous and you'll accomplish nothing. Like the elites will never, ever give you anything. Like they have no material uh, um, uh, motivation to do so. People will try to make the argument that some segments of the elite are becoming are, are becoming pro- proletarian. And so that downward segment is going to make gains. It won't. <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless they join, they actually do join the proletariat and then they join up with a proletarian struggle. So then they will. But otherwise they won't. I think uh, I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, we've already we've already covered the Soviets in Russia. Or did you want to say more about that? Um, well, I just wanted to make the point that yeah, as we're, we've repeated, like unions are just going to be able to make temporary and kind of constrained gains. But I think the Soviets in Russia are a good example of. Um, structures that rose alongside the trade unions and on, alongside the Bolshevik party and was a way of going, was eventually used as an organ through which to go past those limitations and push through the contradictions and lead to a successful workers' revolution. Um, so if like I think, I, I don't know too much about them, like exactly how they operated and things like that, but I think that hopefully we'll see something like that arise again in our current era. I mean, who knows, right? But um, that is a good example of, um, you know, how workers can maybe uh, figure out a way around and beyond the contradictions of trade unionism and, um, you know, really reach class consciousness. I mean, you, you do need a you need a, a vanguard party, though. So we're kind of missing that component, but we'll see. <laughs> well, we've got plenty of wannabes, but no real deal. Um, just just on the on, on the Soviets, it's worth emphasizing that these organizations of Russia emerged um, out of working class struggle in the first revolution in 1905. They weren't invented by Lenin or Stalin or the Mensheviks or the social revolutionaries or anybody else. It was the workers themselves that formed them. And again, that was um, something which was also done in the famous failed revolution in the the Paris Commune of uh, 1870 um, to 71, where you you see the the workers of Paris spontaneously form this um, this council type organization, and then the workers in uh, Petrograd and Moscow and the other major proletarian centers do the same in 1905, and they ra- raise them up again in 1917. Again, these aren't the inventions of any party. These are this this is the innovation of the uh, the Russian working class themselves, and this 
is the reason why Lenin saw them as so important was that these were organs of real proletarian power, which is they weren't they didn't have the compromised nature that the, the any trade union has because this was the workers raising themselves to the position of administering an area of a city or a whole industry perhaps in for the first time really ever in um, Russian working class history that that was suddenly you suddenly saw in embryonic form how Marx and Engels' words about the working class becoming a ruling class could come to be a reality a real political and industrial reality which is why again Lenin saw that as so important to to formulate a whole slogan around it which was all power to the Soviets which is the thing he says in the um, the famous April thesis where he comes in and tells that the tells the Bolshevik Central Committee that they've been getting everything wrong and they need to change lines um, because he sees the the incipient proletarian power there and that's the thing that emerges and emerges in many different contexts in many different cultures all over the world the basic organization of those workers councils has always been the same the workers come together and form a basic structure to administer an industry or administer an area of the country or administer a whole nation sometimes and the fact that that's such a spon uh, that does emerge out of these struggles when they intensify to the point of contesting power tells you that it is a naturally occurring thing in inside the working class all over the world to want to organize in such a fashion which is Lenin's genius in recognizing it as the embryonic basis of a future society. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think things are getting worse for sure. Like, I think the pandemic showed how little, for instance, the bourgeoisie cares about working class wellness and civil liberties and so-called rights. Um, but... Yeah, I, I don't think, I think that we are kind of lucky as a generation because we're living longer, we're healthier, we have this brilliant history, working class history, and several kind of workers' revolutions that happened. Um, so there's a lot to build off of. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just think that if people in the past were able to figure out things and make way bigger gains in far worse situations, like so the life expectancy in Russia, pre-revolutionary Russia was like, 38 years old um you know if if they're able to figure it out then certainly the proletariat of oecd countries and china etc will figure it out as well yeah i mean i i just don't think it's uh you know it's not a hopeless situation and uh i think if you're dialectical about things then it's easy to be hopeful yeah so Play, place a reasoned faith in the ability of uh, working class people all over the world to actually not just resist capital but um, to overthrow it entirely as it has happened before it will happen again and as we've been saying not just on this episode but over and over again the situation for capital today is a lot more fragile than it first appears and a lot more and since it is prone to these violent acts of irrationality and frankly utter stupidity uh, the ruling class ain't up to all that much either. So we may, in certain countries of the West, be recovering from a generation of defeats, and that recovery might still take a few years. But again, it's happened before, it will happen again until we actually get to the point of successfully contesting for power. So the council of despair really needs to end, and proper analysis really needs to begin. Yeah, I, I think that the fact that the bourgeoisie is actually, like, literally so stupid 
is should be very emboldening emboldening to people like yeah. you're yeah. dealing with perhaps the most stupid ruling class ever <laughs> in the history of capitalism <laughs> i i don't know do you agree i really think that these are some of the dumbest so i think that you know it's a good time to strike um and like not like actual strike but like strike <laughs> like them um like in terms of like you know kind of figuring out the weaknesses because there's like a ton of weaknesses and they're just not smart oh, yeah. enough to defend themselves properly against it. Well, there's the old saying that the, the great only appear great because you are on your knees and the they don't even appear that great when you're looking up at them um, because and it's undoubtedly the case that they have declined and we'll, we'll be discussing, I think, in future episodes the implications of the phrase end of history. But just to say here, end of history... I always used to think of it as a piece of propaganda that the uh, a triumphant bourgeoisie threw out, um, threw out there as a, as a monument to their supposed end resolving of the contradictions. Of course, Fukuyama, who came up with the phrase, famously regards himself as something of a Hegelian. Um, but in actual fact, the, the end of history um, is generated by a profound stagnation in the leading capitalist countries and that for all that they did in destroying working class power for a generation and deindustrializing themselves and building this economy based on gigantic amounts of debt and fictitious capital and now all of the stuff that we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years all of the permanent states of emergency via terrorism or via pandemics or via climate change or possibly aliens um, what is it all designed to do? It's actually just designed to keep things ticking over. Fundamentally, um, it's it's about keeping the same rotting, decaying system in place. It's not even about like advancing to a new and more efficient stage of exploitation anymore. It's just literally about propping it all up. And once you realize that, then you you must realize that this is something which is eminently possible for the working class to remove because it's so because it has become weak. Yeah, and I mean it's always been pos- like I mean, it's never always been possible, but like I think like Marxists I think the biggest weakness of the theory is that you never know when we are actually in a revolutionary like it takes a brilliant mind to know when you're actually on the edge of revolution like Lenin. Um so it's difficult like, I, I think it's difficult to grasp the totality and there's so few Marxists doing this kind of thinking. So there's just not a lot of perspective, but you could always be on the edge of a revolution. You never know. You really never know. Um, unless you have like a Lenin type character who can tell you, but <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> yes. otherwise you never, you never know. So stay hopeful. Yeah. And on that note, we'll wrap it up for this week. I think um, I hope that, Again, we've illuminated the the question of trade unionism in a way that actually enables you to look at it in a way that is realistic and look at it in a way that is dialectical, um, because that is our overriding mission here. Um, So thank you for tuning in. Be sure to tell all your friends to subscribe. And if you don't have any friends, find some and then tell them to subscribe. So for this week, it is... Goodbye and good night from me over here in merry old England. And it is... Uh, good afternoon. <laughs> <We're> from <laughs> Canada. <laughs>
yeah, and see we'll see we'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm. Bye. Britain is in a dilemma. A crisis is looming. And each and every one of us have got our part to play. Or so the pundits would have you believe. Well, I want to try and explain and to expose the myth both of a social compact, which means a wage freeze, and the inflationary situation that we find ourselves in at the present time. As far as I'm concerned as the President of this Union, I want to make it crystally clear and say publicly tonight, there can be no contract with a capitalist society that forces down the standard of life of every man, woman and child in the working class movement.